Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in the last chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to cover the first five verses in this audio, The River of Life. Our context is this. In the previous chapter, chapter 21, we saw the new heavens and the new earth come down from heaven in the vision. The new heavens and the new earth standing for the new covenant church. And then in the last half of chapter 21, verses 9 through 27, we talked about the New Jerusalem, which also referred to the New Testament church, two different metaphors describing the wonderful reality of what it's like to live with Christ in his church. The church proceeding from the first advent all the way to the second advent, all the way to the final state to the end of time and beyond. So we start now in verses 1 and 2, Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. Now the he there that's showing John the river of the water of life is one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues. One of the seven angels holding the bowls in the seven bowl judgments. We read that in Revelation 21.9, which is a long way away. He's showing John around there in verse 9 and chapter 21. He says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And now he's going to show us the river of the water of life. Clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now this river of the water of life is the main metaphor here. It comes from Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 9, which I will now read to you, and I'm going to emphasize water as I go through because there's water everywhere. Now this is the picture of the millennial, excuse me, not the millennial temple. This is the picture of the New Testament temple, the new temple, the, the temple of Christ where the Holy Spirit dwells, and it's prophesying about the rise of the Christian church. So let me read this, Ezekiel 47 verses 1 through 9. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Next he brought me by out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate that faced east. There was water. There the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went out east with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a third of a mile and led me through the water. So basically that's a pretty detailed description of where the water is trickling from. But after it goes through it, its source... After it comes from its source, it goes out the east gate of the temple and is heading east toward the Arab Valley. And it's trickling as it starts out. So the angel with the measuring line took Ezekiel out a third of a mile, led him through the water. It came up to my ankles. Then he measured off a third of a mile and led me through the water. It came up to my knees. He measured off another third of a mile and led me through the water. It came up to my waist. Again, he measured off a third of a mile, and it was a river that I could not cross on foot. So here we see a little bit of water started out with a trickling. It's deeper and deeper and deeper until it turns into a river. Now, this is not the way water naturally flows. It doesn't go uphill. It doesn't increase from a trickle into a river. This is symbolic of the fact that the gospel is going to spread. It's going to start out with a trickle. Twelve little fishermen. And then it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it covers the whole world. For the water had risen, Ezekiel continues, it was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be crossed on foot. He asked me, do you see this son of man? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I returned, I saw a very large number of trees along both sides of the riverbank. Now, we need to hold that for right now. Trees on both sides of the riverbank. That sounds just like what John has just finished saying here in verse 
2 of Revelation 22. On either side of the river was the tree of life. So we go back to Ezekiel, verse 8. He said to me, this water flows out to the eastern region and goes down to the Arba. The Arba is the valley that goes from the Sea of Galilee through the Dead Sea and on down to Elot at the at the uh, entrance to the Red Sea. When it, the water, enters the sea, the sea of foul water, I assume that's the Dead Sea, which is, has foul water in it, as you know, the water of the sea becomes fresh. And there's your symbol of the fact that the water of life, Jesus' water, makes everything new and fresh and alive, that before which was dead, as the converting work of the Holy Spirit progresses. Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows, the water of the river of life. And there will be a huge number of fish, because this water goes there, lots of converts. Since this water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. So the river of the water of life is the Holy Spirit, Converting people, converting the nations. And this is what John saw, the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice that God the Father and God the Son, the Lamb, both are sitting on the throne. The throne belongs to them because they both rule, of course. And notice that this water of life is coming from them. They're the ones that give life to the nations. So this water of life represents new life in Christ. This is an easy metaphor. We are very familiar with the scripture in John 4.14. Jesus says this, But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. He's speaking to the Samaritan woman. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So water is a symbol of life because it allows living fish to swim in the water and because it gives us life physical life and becomes a symbol for spiritual life from Jesus, from his Holy Spirit. John 7 verses 37, 38, and 39. On the last and most important day of the festival, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. That's at Pentecost. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not been glorified. But he did get glorified, raised to heaven, and then he gave the Spirit at Pentecost. So the water of life is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the throne of God under the Lamb, goes out into the nations, and brings life everywhere it goes. It's a great picture here. Now we go to verse 2, and we have a little problem because we have a tree of life. Well, first of all, let's, before we get to the tree of life, let's look at this river of the water of, of life. Where is it flowing? It's in the middle of its street. So if you will picture a city, and right through the middle of the city is the river. A lot of cities actually do that. In the middle of its street, it says. Now, the city, of course, is representative of the New Covenant Church. So that means we have life flowing right through the middle of us, the church. There's life. That life comes from God. It comes from Jesus. Now... Picture in the city, the river going through the middle of the street, and now we pick up in verse 2, on either side of the river was the tree of life. Now, immediately we have a problem because how can one tree be on both sides of the river? It says on either side. How can you have one tree on both sides of the river? Well, here's possible answers. John Gill suggests as an option that the tree is growing on one side and the boughs of the tree reach over the river to the other, and that's the easiest way to take it, in my opinion. David Chilton has an idea. He says that tree of life does not have the V in front of it in the Greek. It's tree of life, so you could read it as a tree of life. So there were many trees on both sides of the river. So let me read that that way. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river was a tree of life. 
So you see there's a tree of life on one side and there's a tree of life on the other side. Well, that's a reasonable solution too. It doesn't really fit in with most people's conception here. We usually think of one tree of life. So I'm just going to say the boughs stretch from one side of the river to the other. You could say the roots traverse the river and spring up on both sides. Well, I don't know. I think it's easier just to say the bow reaches over or that you've got two trees, one on either side. That's not important. The point, the importance of the metaphor of the tree of life is that the tree of life is Jesus because this tree of life grows fruit. People eat the fruit and they live. No man can grow fruit unless he is attached to the vine, unless he abides in the vine so he can grow fruit. When Jesus grows fruit, we, people eat the fruit and they live. The leaves are the tree for the healing of the nations. That means their salvation. So Jesus is the tree of life. Now, going into a little more detail, why is it said, why does John say that there are 12 kinds of fruit? Well, there's a new crop of fruit every month. The provision that Jesus has will never, ever run out. Every month, something new. More fruit, more fruit. Also, 12 is the standard symbol for the church because there were 12 apostles who were the foundation of the New Jerusalem, as we've already mentioned in the previous chapter. So when we see 12, we need to think either 12 tribes of old Israel or the 12 apostles of new Israel. 12 kinds of fruit. Perhaps that's what John is talking about, the 12 apostles, or he could just be talking about 12 months. Every month there's more fruit. I tend to think the latter. Yielding its fruit every month, because right here in the verse, the month is mentioned, yielding its fruit every month. So it makes me think he's talking about 12 kinds of fruit, one for each month, showing the delicious diversity there is in Christ, spiritual diversity and richness. We go now to Revelation 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. That's the New Jerusalem. And his bondservants will serve him. Now, if you read the book of Revelation with a futurist lens like I did for so many years, I would read that and I'm thinking, oh, that's great. At the very end of time, either in the future millennial kingdom or in the final state, there will no longer be any curse. We've got the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and all of his bondservants will serve him. And, of course, that's logically possible. But is it necessary to hold that way? I don't believe it is. For example, every one of these things that we see in verse 3 in Revelation 22 can be seen in the New Testament referring to the New Testament church. For example, there will no longer be any curse. We read in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus took the curse on the tree, so there's no longer any curse on us. All right, so that takes care of the curse in Revelation 22, 3, there will no longer be any curse in the New Jerusalem, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. Is Jesus ruling on his throne now in the church? Now, but not in the far future, in the final state? Yes, God and Jesus rule in the present day church as well as the final state. Let me read some script. Now, let me, before I read these scriptures, let me say that this used to be a bone of contention with dispensationalists who were always trying to push the throne of Jesus out into the millennium in the future because they're so hog tied to that pre-mill theory and their inveterate futurism, it causes them to push that very hard. I will say that progressive dispensationalists, from what I have read, have more or less abandoned that erroneous theory, and that they now say that Jesus is now ruling on his throne, for which I say, God bless you, for seeing the obvious. Matthew 19:28. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, he's talking to the disciples, and the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, now when's the renewal of all things? It's the new covenant. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne in the new covenant, you who will have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Because the apostles, at the time of the establishment of the church, will be the foundation of the church. Now, that 
verse in Matthew 19:28 very well could refer to a far-off, distant rule of Jesus and the apostles in a future millennium or the final state, but it doesn't have to. I mean, if a dispensationalist might want to say, well, you know, the apostles are going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and we have to take the Bible literally, and so that means it's a Jewish millennium. Well, Jesus is using Israel here because that's what the people of God were called at that time. He's using Israel as a proxy for the new Israel, the church. He's not saying that the old Israel will produce until the end of time. This is just what the author of Hebrews did in Hebrews 8.8. 8. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And we all agree what the new covenant is, right? It's the new covenant church. I will make a new covenant with the church? No. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And, of course, what the author of Hebrews meant was the house of Israel is the church. He was just using Jeremiah's Old Testament ter terminology, so Jesus was doing the same thing here. He's saying the apostles are going to be using the 12 tribes of new Israel, the church. Now, again, that verse could be interpreted as saying these, this ruling, son of man ruling on his glorious throne could be in the far-off future, either a future millennium or the final state. However, that, that verse is a little bit ambiguous, but there's so many other scriptures that show that Jesus is ruling now during the time of the church. Now let's go through some of these scriptures. Luke one thirty two. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Well, I guess you could argue that could be in the future too. That might be a little ambiguous, but let's keep going. Acts 2.30. Since he, referring to David, since David was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. We drop down to Acts 2, verse 32 and 33. God has raised, notice the past tense there, the past perfect tense. God has raised this Jesus. This is Peter speaking at the, his famous Pentecostal sermon. He tells the crowd, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, God's sitting on his throne. Jesus has been raised up to the right hand of God. That's already happened. Peter says, in, in Peter's past... Jesus was raised up on the throne. He was not raised up to the throne in some future millennium or the final state. Acts 7.49, Stephen speaking at his persecution and final death, he says, he's, he's quoting Jesus, or quoting God, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what will be my resting place? Heaven is my throne. So God was on the throne in Stephen's time. Heaven is my throne. Already is. Not going to be off in the future. Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Well, now, if the throne of grace did not exist at the time that the author of Hebrews was writing, then why does he say, let us approach the throne of grace? How can you approach the throne of grace that hasn't, there is not there yet. No Jesus on the throne yet. We don't draw near to an empty throne. God is sitting on that throne now. Hebrews 8.1. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat, past tense, down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He sat down there when he was raised up to heaven. Last verse. Hebrews 12.2. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sat down, past tense. All right, so going back to our verse here in Revelation 22, 3, we see the throne of God and the Lamb is in the New Jerusalem. Yeah, it's already there. The New Jerusalem is the church. And his bondservants will serve him. That's the third thing that will 
that is now happening in the present-day church as well as the final state. Colossians 4.1, Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So the Christian slave owners in Colossae had a master in heaven, so that means that those slave owners were themselves bondservants of their master in heaven, so we're bondservants now. Not in the, not only in the future, a so-called future millennium, or in the final state, no. We, we're bondservants now. All right, so let me repeat summarize verse 3 for you, Revelation 22, 3. This is referring to the new covenant church. There will no longer be any curse because we are redeemed from the curse of the law and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it because Jesus has sat down on his throne at the right hand of God already and we are seated with him and his bond service will serve him because we are all bond servants of Christ now in the new covenant church. You see, why do we have to push that off into the future? Why can't we enjoy that now? Revelation 22.4, they will see his face. The bondservants of Christ will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Well, now, is that the future or is it now? Now, if you say, well, we'll see his face, you're talking about physically seeing Jesus' face, then that would mean that John is referring to the final state. But does seeing his face mean that you have to physically see his face? Here's some scriptures right now that, sh that show that right now we see Jesus' face in the New Covenant Church Age. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So we stand in Jesus' presence and his face, and we see the glory of God, even though we don't see him physically. Hebrews 2, 9, But we do see Jesus, made lower than the angels for a short time. We don't see Jesus physically. We understand him. We know him. But we don't see him physically. So that phrase that will see his face does not necessitate that we have to push all of Revelation 22 and the river of life and the tree of life all up into the future state, final state. No, it's talking about the present New Covenant church age. Revelation 22.4 also says his name will be on their foreheads. Now, this is a familiar metaphor here, having your name on your forehead. Let's look at, well, let's look at previous places in Revelation where we see that. Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. The temple, of course, is the New Testament church. I will write on him the name of my God. Now, it doesn't say the name is on the far, but we assume it's on the far, I think. Revelation 7.3, don't harm the earth or the sea of the trees until we seal the servants of God, where? On their foreheads. So we have a seal on the foreheads. we got a name written on them. The seal probably the form of the seal is Jesus Christ, the name Jesus Christ. And when you have a seal, you put your name on it, put your seal down that shows that it's yours. So we assume that the name was the seal. The seal had the name of Jesus and it was put on the foreheads of the believers. Revelation 14.1, Then I looked and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So when you see the name of the Christian written on, excuse me, not the name of the Christian, but when you see the name of Christ, and when you see, see the name of God the Father, when you see the name of God the Son and God the Father written on your forehead, what does that mean? Well, if you put your name on a basketball, what does that mean? It means the basketball belongs to you, and it also means you want to protect that basketball from anybody trying to steal it from you. Likewise, when God puts his name on us, he's saying, you're mine, buddy. You're mine, and ain't nobody going to take you away from me because I'm looking out for you, which is a comforting thought. We go now to Revelation verses, uh, chapter 22, verse 5. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have 
neither the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. There was a previous verse, which unfortunately I don't have in front of me, but the, it was the last chapter where it says that the saints will be like luminaries in the new Jerusalem, or the new heavens and the new earth, I forgot which. They will be like luminaries, shining as the light of the stars. Well, why are they shining so brightly? Because the Lord God will illumine them here. So we don't need any light in the New Jerusalem because we're going to be lit up. Now, this is not talking about physical light. It's talking about spiritual light. Many scriptures say that Christ is the light now, not in the future, not completely merely in the future, but also now in the New Testament church age. Isaiah 61 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to your shining brightness. There, Isaiah is talking about the spread of the New Testament church. And the metaphor he uses over and over again is light. Malachi 4, 1 and 2. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, that's light, that's S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like cows from the stall. So this coming day of the Lord, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. That's talking about Jesus. Luke 1, 78-79, Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. So God's light will shine on us. Not on, well, on those who live in darkness. Shine on us before we were saved. We will live it in darkness and the shadow of death. And He lit us up. John 1, 4, and 5, John 1, verses 4 and 5, in him, that's Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Drop down to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, verses 12 and 13. Giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. 2 Peter 1.19 We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. More light. The day dawns. The stars shine. The lamp shines. Well, that was overkill there, but just it's kind of fun to put all the verses together and see how, how often God uses light to show spiritual enlightenment. So that's what's being talked about here in Revelation 5 in the New Jerusalem. We don't need any physical light because we've got all the spiritual light. We're going to be illumined by God. And he finishes off in verse 5, they, the saints, will reign forever and ever. Not just for a thousand years, folks. Forever and ever. Now, the they is the saints, the church. We co-rule with Jesus. We saw that in Revelation 11:15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. 
Sounds like Handel's Messiah. He will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. He will reign forever and ever. Now, that's the exact same pronoun used. That's the exact same phrase used here in Revelation 11:15 about Jesus reigning forever. But notice the same phrase is used here in Revelation 22:5 about the saints, and they will reign forever. He will reign forever in Revelation 11. And Revelation 22, they will reign forever. We're going to rule with Jesus. I don't have the rod of iron verses, but I've showed in previous chapters that Jesus rules the nations with a rod of iron, and the church rules the nations with a rod of iron. I wish I'd have thought to put them in my notes here. I didn't do it, but I'll just refer to it right now. The meek indeed will inherit the earth. We're going to rule with Jesus forever and ever. And with that happy note, we're finished with Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, the river of the water of life. And now we prepare for our next audio, which will be our last one on the book of Revelation, assuming I can get it all in. Revelation 22, 6 through 21, Jesus is coming soon. S-O-O-N. Soon. And he's coming quickly. Soon. I emphasize that, you know, for obvious reasons. I'm an Orthodox preterist. That's what the book of Revelation is mainly talking about. Jesus is coming soon to judge his enemies and to set up the new covenant, which is going to last forever into the future. So we do have some future in there too to look forward to. So see you next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.